some bad news. Bad news. Yeah. Not for you. Oh, okay. For the audience. And that is Meredith is back. Okay. That is rude. That's rude. I am back though. So she's back, bitches. I'm back, bitches. And I can tell she's back, not only by her presence, of course, but by how dirty the stove is. Look, like I've cleaned the stove twice since I've been back. Go look at it right now. Tell me if it's dirty. It is. I know you're doing a better job. Mm-hmm. I can tell I'm back because I get this question a lot. What's the plan? What's the plan for the day? What are you planning on doing today? What time are you going to do this? What time do you think you're going to work out? What's your workout? What movements are in your workout? Are you going to run today? Are we planning on going to the grocery <laughs> store? What's your plan for next week? Do you have any plans? It's like that. That's how I know I'm back. Yeah. So it's good. So you mean you're being productive again? <laughs> yeah, we'll go you're with that. You're planning ahead. You're being productive. You're getting shit done. Mm-hmm. You're not forgetting things because I'm reminding you. Yeah. That sort of thing. Exactly. <laughs> So we're both happy that we're back together. Yeah. <laughs> Reunited and it feels so good. <laughs> Did you get it? You got the the joke? Yeah. Okay. I can tell when you get a joke because you laugh. You actually laugh kind of hard instead of like fake laughing. So it's good. Um, yeah. I don't know how to like honestly live up to what you put out while i was gone you will never i may have another one in the works okay but it's not about you oh um we'll see we'll see if it it, i i feel like i i worry i've set the bar so high yeah that it's going to be hard to match that and i just don't want to be disappointing people i don't know i think you could come up with like a series just life stories little tidbits i was it my next podcast was going to be on like awkward moments that we all experience but never talk about Ooh, do you want to like what's a a little spoiler like one one that i was thinking of and it's like it's like that moment in a massage like not like a sports massage like a therapeutic massage when you're lying there naked and they like pull the covers up Mm -hmm. and they're like please turn like please turn around like roll towards me onto your back yeah but you're like completely exposed like they've lifted the covers off of you. Yeah. And you ever wonder like they could be peeking over that sheet. Yeah. You're completely exposed. Unless you're like me. Very untrustworthy. And so I always wear underwear. Oh. Yeah, I do too usually. It's just, it feels better. Yeah. <laughs> I think that. Um, Brenda says that wearing underwear at a massage ruins the massage because they have to like maneuver around them when they're massaging your butt i don't get my butt massaged that often i'm not like you know what massage my ass cheeks i mean they they definitely do like aggressively pull your panties down to mm-hmm. massage the upper part of your butt i'm sure and that you're they like can... wow you can see my butt crack yeah <laughs> but it's okay but what? it's still awkward yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's maybe a weird phenomenon. Maybe being completely nude in a massage like serves some other purpose for people. It's just it's like exhilarating. Maybe so like ooh, it takes away from the experience if I'm not completely nude. <laughs> it's not as exciting. Yeah, it's possible. 
I think uh, my awkward moment, although this one probably gets talked about, is when you're like, maybe you've stopped somewhere to chat with a friend who you run into at the park when you're there feeding the ducks Mm -hmm. with your grandparent. Just that's an example. Yeah. Um, And so you're chatting with your friend. Your grandfather has left because Walter doesn't have patience for duck feeding. No, he doesn't. We've actually never duck fed. Yeah. Fed ducks. This is a hypothetical though. So it's my, this is my world. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're feeding the ducks with Walter and he has, he's, he's already run out of patience for, for the ducks. Uh, And then you stop to talk to your friend who's an ex ski racer and he's run out of patience for, for that because he wants to go and, you know, (laughs) home and eat. Where pierogies. are you heading with this? Just I'm painting the okay. I'm painting the the picture. So, I mean, the problem there first off is if I see somebody I know, I completely ignore them and pretend I don't see them to avoid the experience of having to talk to an old friend. Um, yeah, I mean, so but we're just going to pretend that doesn't happen. Let's assume that that's not happened. Let's assume that we've gotten past the point where you, They've you already walk seen up. Me. Yeah, they you've walked up to your old friend and started to talk to them and they've they've already said, I'm sorry, who are you? And you go, oh, it's Alex Parker. And they're like, oh, right, Alex. You know, they remembered you. That awkward moment is gone. Okay. Um, you know, they're not like, what's your name again? Anyways, you're chatting. You both remember each other talking about the good times, ski racing. And then um, it's time to part ways. And you say, well, it was really nice catching up with you, Susie. Um, hopefully we can do this again soon. I'll like talk to you later. And she says, that sounds great. Bye. And then you, you both start walking off. In the same direction. In the same direction. That's definitely been talked about. Yeah. So no, that's not going to make the cut. Okay. That's why you don't have your own solo podcast. Oh, okay. Um, but good try. I'll do better next time. <laughs> no, that is awkward. But that's why you have to avoid those situations altogether. Well, you know what? I I have a move. Um, I go through that whole rigmarole. And then I I say goodbye. And then I either pause to like look at something on my phone or like tie my shoe mm-hmm. so I can see what direction they're going. And even if I need to be going in that direction, I will turn around and walk in the opposite yeah, direction that's for a smart. period of time. That is when yeah. I would, I've probably done that. If there's a bush, maybe I like, instead of just <laughs> indefinitely walking opposite, I, maybe I'll duck just, in behind the bush or you just, jump in the pond or something. <laughs> literally <laughs> like just anything to get out of run into the men's room, like whatever it is just to get out of that situation. Yeah. Yeah. Smart. Mm hmm. Yeah. How was your trip? I mean, obviously I already know, but for for our listeners, um it was great. The one, the one listener. The one listener. 1 million, you <laughs> mean? <laughs> um yeah, I went to North Carolina to visit with my sister and her new baby, Ashton, my nephew. Um she had him in early March, so he was about a month old he's what five or six weeks old now really fresh you don't realize like you know how helpless babies are until you're around a really fresh one for a period of time um 
but it was great he was really cute it's weird i'm not necessarily like a baby person or like a kid person i don't never had stronger just to have them i'm not one of those people who when there's a baby around i'm like oh can i hold it like i'm just i've never been that person i think i wasn't really like exposed to babies and also i've just i don't think i'm like a particularly motherly individual um but there's something about when your twin has a baby and that baby kind of like looks like you when you were a baby like there's definitely I could have a baby that looked just like that there's like an extra now I'm interested in that baby hmm. more than I've been well, interested it might just in. be that you're like related to it it's not the fact that she's your twin that's I think true. aunts generally feel that way around family. I don't know. I, I, one of my friends on line, Addie, the, you know, the girl who, who runs, she's a twin also. And I guess her twin just had a baby and she posted something a couple of days ago that was said something to the effect of, you know, when your twin has a, you know, this is my niece. There's something about when your twin has a kid. But does she have another sister who's not her twin? No. Well, then how does she know it's different? Uh, I don't know. She's probably making the same assumptions that I am. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he's really cute. Um, he was on like a 36 hour poop cycle. So I guess newborns or like babies don't poop every 24 hours like adults do. So he was pooping every like 36 hours and twice he pooped while I was holding him. So I have the touch for that. And like, you know, that like babies like fart kind of a lot, which I didn't know. He's just like a fart machine. But yeah, you can always tell cause he's, he'll go from farting to like charting and the sound is different. And then there's the smell. And then the second time it escaped his diaper onto my forearm. And that was really special, but it was great. Um, it was a nice visit. The first couple of days, uh, I, w I have really terrible pollen allergies and the pollen was really bad. So either I was having extremely bad pollen allergies or I had COVID. I'm not sure which one it was. Um, but I'm better. So yeah, and then we went to, I went to Boston and met you. Didn't you get, I thought we were going to talk about your foot. Oh, right. Yeah, I guess that goes, that gets lumped in with. So you've been having foot problems since what, December? Yeah, so it started up mid-December and if you've been, f maybe you know this if you've been following, um, but I'll do a quick background. Like mid-December. I went on a run and at that point I had, I had run the half marathon in September, but had like been running in the fall and then started to do more speed work kind of leading into December. Cause I was, I'm sort of aiming for like a sub 90 this year. Um, so I was still running quite a bit, like doing pretty high volume. It wasn't like I was un like deconditioned for running by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, I think I had like a 15K programmed on the same day that you had a 18K or something like that. So I was like, well, I'll just run the 18K with you. Well, it was really windy. It Remember was. that day? And so I was yeah. like, what we should do is run east and get my mom to pick us up downtown and drive us back home. Yeah. Because it was like, it was so windy that running into the wind would have just been absolutely horrible. And it was winter, so it was really cold. Yeah. So we ran point to point mm -hmm. from our house into downtown. Um, and the, the only odd thing about that run was the first like eight kilometers was on, like once you got out of, out of our neighborhood, it was kind of on packed snow. So the, 
it was like a, a pathway, but it had snowed and gotten packed out. And that's just kind of how that area is in the wintertime. Um, so kind of like, it's not as loose as sand, like running it's on like the running beach. It's like running on sand that has been, that the tide has just touched. Yeah. So you, you get, s- it's relatively solid, but as you push off, there's definitely some like slippage, but not really enough to have a major impact on pace. Um, so it was fine. Like felt fine during the run. Um, finished it. The next day I had really terrible, like heel pain, sort of plantar fasciitis pain crop up, which is odd. I've had plantar fasciitis before and it always comes on pretty slowly. And this was just like flip a switch, severe plantar fasciitis, like could barely put weight on my foot. And then it improved after a couple of days, but was still there. So I kind of figured I would just try to like run through it and do, you know, see if it would go away and it didn't. And then I cut volume way back and it still would kind of, I would, you know, go on a, a short run and it would crop up the next day. And so kind of decided uh, at some point to just take just fully off running, just stop running. Cause there wasn't really a point for me to do, to be running 20 kilometers a week. That wasn't going to be moving me towards my goals. And it seemed like even that small of volume was going to, uh, hinder recovery. Um, so I started going to PT, started getting like some massage, like just started trying to work through it. Um, and yeah, it was just, it was lingering. So I made the decision, um, actually scheduled to get imaging done here to kind of start the process of getting it, seeing a sports specialist and getting it taken care of. And, uh, booking the, the imaging was like six weeks out. And then that's just the beginning of the process. Um, you know, an MRI would take even longer. Injection would take even longer. So I kind of decided to take advantage of my time in North Carolina and book in with, um, this doctor, this orthopedist who is there, who happens to be like the foot guy. And I've seen him before, um, for a different issue (coughs) and yeah, just, just get it like pay out of pocket and get it taken care of there. So that's what I did. I saw him. And then he said, just based on kind of an exam, he did an exam and I wasn't, I didn't have on my left foot, which is the injured one, didn't have a prominent like central cord of my plantar fascia. So your plantar fascia has three cords, two lateral and one that runs down the middle. And he said, it's weird because your right one is very prominent. And then your left one, there's, he's like, I can't, I can't find it essentially. Um, he's like, I'm worried that there might be, you may have ruptured it. And if that's the case, then we wouldn't want to like do a cortisone injection, which is what I was there to get. So he said, I'm like out of an abundance of caution, I'm going to recommend that you get an MRI, uh, just so we don't do any, like do more damage to it. So I got an MRI, um, super fast turnaround. So I had that appointment on like Thursday, got the MRI on Saturday back in the office on the following Wednesday to do the readout. So just like super quick turnaround on it. And then based on the MRI, only 10 times more expensive. Well, that's the thing is, it, the turnaround was really quick. You are like, I did pay out of pocket. It was quite expensive. I could have paid out of pocket to have it done here and it would have been slightly less, but then I don't get to see like the guy. So it was just a decision that I made and I recognize there's a great deal of privilege and being able to make that decision. Um, but yeah, the MRI showed a really like, like very thick plantar fascia, like plantar fascia right in front of the heel. And he said it, it, what I think this is, is it was ruptured and then it healed on its own. Um, he's like, if with the timeline being mid December, that makes sense. Um, he's like, so it's just, it's really, really thick. There's a lot of thickening. There's a lot of inflammation. And then you have a bone spur and what appears to be some, um, edema 
on the opposite side, which um, suggests that you had a stress fracture at one one time, probably from trying to run through it and compensating. But he's like, because you've normally, he said, normally I would be concerned about this, but because you've taken time off, it's, it's in my mind, probably on the up and up, like healing rather than getting worse. Um, so yeah, I got a cortisone injection that day, which hurt badly, but, um, it's doing much better, which I've had cortisone injections before and they're, they can be pretty magical. Um, but they do kind of require that you, you treat the area appropriately rather than just like rushing back into whatever you were doing that hurt it in the first place. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm kind of doing a, like a couch to 5k type program for the f- the next four to six weeks a lot of run walk very low volume very slow just to um recondition the foot and make sure that it's safe and good to go for the summer so I have uh I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic at this point because it feels really good it's been a bit of a a long one like I guess in the grand scheme of things a few months isn't that long but when you don't exactly know what's going on and why it's not improving yeah it's hard to like manage that mentally at least it would be for me so like but I feel like with you you're better at managing like injuries than I would be or like other people you kind of just refocus back on strength did what you could yeah you don't complain I think it helps that I'm not um I didn't have like Boston on my calendar. I didn't have anything that I had to do. Like I have a a goal, um, but there's no real time limit on that. So my, my main goal just in life, like generally right now is to, to feel good and be healthy and like be able to do the things that I enjoy doing, which, um, yeah, is working out, running, biking. So if it meant that I needed to take some time off in the winter time when it's not particularly pleasant to run anyways, then I was willing to do that. And the the reality is if I had done what I, if I had gone to see Dr. Hewitt in, um, you know, February bef- rather than in April and done the same thing and had the MRI and it was ruptured, it would be like, yeah, well, there's nothing that you can do other than rest it anyway. So mm-hmm. um, what I did, I think, was an, an inevitable um, period of rest to heal, you know, however. I still don't know how it happened. I think it was a combination of the run and, you know, I stepped on that one piece of ice that one time, kind of tweaked my foot. It's just like a perfect storm. Yeah. <coughs> that was not a good run for you. I remember that run. Yeah. But yeah. Anyways, it's good that it's back. Yeah. Feel It feels like normal again. Yep. I'm just happy to be outside running my two kilometers. Yeah. That's <laughs> okay. So let's talk about your running. Yeah. I did Boston just less than a week ago, Monday, April 18th. The Boston Marathon. Yeah. Yep. And I ran it in 308.45, which is a 427 per kilometer pace. Yeah. Which is, what is that in miles? I think it's like a 710. I can tell you. I have it right here. Okay. It's... um. Or, yeah, it is a 7.10. Yeah. 7.10 minute per mile. Yes. And it was tough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, like, what... Okay, so I signed up. I guess I'll just start. Yeah. 
Well, how did, did you uh, how did you qualify for Boston? Yeah, because I had a few people ask. Well, how did she get in? How long? Like, how did she get in for the lottery? So I guess explain. There is no lottery in Boston. Well, uh, charity. Sorry. Oh. Um. Like what charity? So explain like how many people qualify have to qualify versus how many charity spots there are. Like okay. how that process so, works. As you probably know, if you're a listener, I ran <coughs> I ran the Chicago Marathon in October, and I did that through a charity. So. Chicago is one of the ones that you have to get in through a lottery or you have to do it by through a charity. So I fundraised for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and you get a spot. You don't have to apply for the lottery. You get, you get a spot. They're allotted a certain number of charity spots. And I ran that marathon in 322 something. Yeah, like 322.30. Yeah. And so that was fast enough to qualify me for Boston. And in Boston, you either have to qualify. There's qualifying standards based on um, your your sex and your age. Mm-hmm. So for my age, I'm in between the like, it's like un- 18 to 35, I think is sub 330. So you have to be sub 330 to even be able to register. And then depending on how many people register, like su- there are some years where you actually have to be significantly faster than 330 to actually get in like meet and exceed and exceed the standard yeah it really depends on how many people apply yeah so in my year everyone i think it's because there weren't as many qualifying races to get a qualifying time due to covid that everyone who was under the standard in every age group got in they also ran out of time to validate times um so there were thirty thousand runners in boston and roughly 80% of those people um, qualified. 20% are charity. So I guess that means there were 6,000 people who were running for a charity and didn't have qualifying times. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I did qualify for Boston. And then in sh- when I ran Chicago, my goal wasn't to qualify for Boston, but I had a client who was running a marathon just after Chicago and her goal was to qualify for Boston and she did. And so I was kind of like, well, maybe I should run Boston. Like I didn't really understand the hype around Boston. And then I started looking into it and I was like, I might as well do it. And so then I started training for Boston in November. Um, so I trained for five and a half months. Yeah. Um, and in that time got quite a bit faster and more comfortable with like the running volume and stuff. Yeah, I think the um, what has to be pointed out, I think, is that the, you know, the bulk of your training for Boston and you knew this going into it occurred during probably the worst season for running in Calgary. So, I mean, you started training in November. It's already kind of starting to get cold. December this year in Calgary was brutal. Yeah, there were some really cold days. Um, and just this winter in general, I, I feel like had a lot of really cold days. Um, or it was like, it would be kind of nice, but super windy. Yeah. So it was like, I think that's, that's something that is a little bit different for your training compared to someone who lives in a more temperate climate. And I just think that that there's a lot of people who just wouldn't do it. They would either run inside like treadmill training or indoor track. Um, or they just, they wouldn't run a, a race in the spring. Yeah, it was tough when it was really cold because like I do have a cutoff and it's like if if it exceeds if it's colder than minus 20 with wind chill, 
minus 25 then I'm like that is not safe I once ran when it was really cold and I got frostbite on my face and I've also like injured myself by running in the really cold because your gait changes um like your shoes freeze and the foam gets really hard um you risk running in like some super slippery weather and things like that it's just not good so I had that cut off and there were a couple days where it was super cold and I was my option because of covid they don't have they didn't have any indoor tracks yeah. open because the usually they the have oval, the olympic oval mm-hmm, which is a good track training. it's like a pretty it's like 500 meters um so i was like okay i'll just do that but they didn't have it open and then like my parents they have an old treadmill that is like it's fine but it's <laughs> like it's small and it's running like I think I did like a couple, like 12 or 15 K so yeah. like an hour and 20 minutes, an hour to an hour and 20 minutes. Like treadmill is brutal. The only time I ran on that one this year before I stopped was like 10 K. Yeah. And I was like, this was horrible. It's really boring. And then also like oh, there was one day it was really cold and I had to run intervals and I tried to do intervals on it and I tr- tried to bring it up to like a fast pace and it just like shut off. Yeah. Cause the thing is like really old. Yeah. Like 25 years old. Yep. Um, but yeah, most, I did almost all my runs outside and just kind of sucked it up. There was one, I remember it was 21 K and it was absolutely freezing outside. Yeah. And like you get to a point where you're, you're running and like your inside is warm because you're running. Yeah. But like the outside, like my arms would start getting really cold, like the skin. Yeah. And you would come back and even for like an hour after, like your skin on the outside would still feel cold. Yeah. I would, uh, um, when I was running in December, like before my foot thing, I remember there was one, I I think I went out and it was like minus 21 or something like that. And I went out for a run and it was from the house. So ran out, came back and just my whole face was completely covered. I, I put a picture up, that day because it was just so absurd yeah um but i i remember i felt okay and then i got in the shower and it was like someone had taken like a hot (laughs) poker to my ass and i looked back and like i think partially because you just have more fat that accumulates on the back of your legs um just like you know ass fat leg fat back there it's in you're not like it's like separate and apart from your body. Yeah, because your muscles they stay warm and they they generate heat. So I think like your quads and like where you're just leaner is gonna be just a little bit warmer. <laughs> um, but your like your fat tissue doesn't. It's not as active. It's yeah, not active like, at I, all. My triceps are always like bright red. Yeah, um, I just thought it was really so. Mine were like red, but then also a little bit swollen. Um, so that was, uh, that was Sometimes quite a, my butt gets like itchy. I know. Yeah. That was like was my like, this whole is a weird phenomenon. And it, it stays itchy for like an hour yeah. while it warms up. <laughs> Super weird. Um, yeah, it's just one of those like winter running things. But I had a lot of people be like, why don't you run on a treadmill? Like, why are you running outside kind of thing? And then I, it's just like, cause I hate running on a treadmill. Yeah. And for the most part, you can dress appropriately enough, like to a point where then your feet get cold and things like that, or like exposing your skin is, is difficult. You can do like cross country skiers and just start like taping over your nose mm-hmm. and like on your face. Yeah. And I did buy one of those masks, but I never got to use it because it was after I had hurt myself. But like the one thing I noticed and I've, I've noticed I've, I've run in the winter many times before, like, um, 
all through law school and stuff, I was running before classes. But the first few runs when it's cold, it's hard. It's like your body isn't used to it. Yeah. Your brain isn't used to it. And then it gets like through the winter, you're just, you kind of adjust. It's like, oh, it's cold, but it doesn't have as much of a, it's like you're adapted to it in a way. Yeah. It's like I used to have cold showers before bed. And yeah. the first few were brutal, but then you almost like, you get used to it. Yes. And so like, it's not as bad in the middle of winter as you think because you've, you're used to it. And then also, you know, you learn about like all this science around like cold exposure and stuff. And I, and I think, well, I don't do any of that. But then I think it is really, it actually is really good for you to expose yourself to cold yeah. sometimes. And then also hot therapy with like a shower. So I'm like, oh, you're getting a lot of benefits. Not to mention the fact that being outside in the winter is kind of, it's not that common unless you're a skier yeah, or you do another winter activity or you go for walks. I find that having run this winter, I just felt like I was in a better mood partially because running makes me be in a good mood. But I think getting your, your eyeballs like exposed to the sunlight and just being outside, breathing fresh air. Yeah. And like disconnecting, like not being on your mm-hmm. phone, not having any music or anything for, you know, f- three or four times a week. And getting to spend time outside. I think that's... Yeah. So while there were days where I was like, ugh. I think for the most part, I was positive about it. Yeah. And then also having something like the Boston Marathon on the calendar, of course, is somewhat externally motivating as well. Yeah. Exactly. But... Um, All right. So that's a little training rabbit hole. Let's get back to Boston weekend. Um, So... Qualified for Boston, trained through the winter time. When did you start? So I think when you initially set out for Boston, you kind of decided like a sub three hour, 15 minute would be the goal, like like a train, like goal pace for setting training paces. At what time or what point did you realize your race pace was likely to be quite a bit faster than a sub 315 pace and even like a, a sub getting into like the sub 310 which i want to point out i called that one yeah. a long time ago i think i think it was like seven or eight weeks out i did 15k at race pace which was determined by me i was determining race pace and i ran like hard i was just like i'm gonna see how this feels like a little bit faster and I always think I'll start out with the first few kilometers fast and then ease into it and find like that comfortable pace where I'm like, this is sustainable when I'm pushing. And I ended up, I think it was around like a 3.30. And I'm like, damn, I did not realize I could do that because November 2020, which is about now a year and a half ago, yeah, I ran a 10K for time and barely, barely did it in under with a 4.30 pace, so 45 minutes. And my heart rate was high. And it, I remember that my RPE was like 9.5 out of 10 by the end. Brutal. Yeah. And then I got home and I like legitimately had diarrhea. Like that's how <laughs> hard the effort was. Yeah. So I'm like, how is it possible I'm running longer at that pace at like with my heart rate being like 165? Yeah. And that's when I started gaining confidence. And then I think I did like a slower, longer run the next week. And then the next week I did 25K at race pace sorry 20k at race pace and this was in around the february sometime in february march and yeah beginning of march i think okay yeah um 
And I, and I was able to hit that pace again. Yeah. And then I did that at 25, like two weeks later I did 25 K and I was like, I felt amazing. And I think I ran like a four thirty. sorry, four, it was sub four thirty. like four. I think your 25 was like a four twenty four. Yeah. And I remember you were with me that day Yeah. and I felt amazing. Like I remember running the last K thinking like I could sprint this in, like that's how good I feel. Like my body feels good. My heart rate is, is manageable. Um, and I had the intro workout carb loading like nailed down from Chicago. So that was all good. And then two weeks after that, I ran 32K at race base. And that was one where I was like, I'm going to just like push hard and see what happens because I don't want to get to the marathon and play it safe. I want to know going in like what is possible. And this 32 will kind of give me an idea. So 32, that's 10 kilometers or around six miles short of the total distance. Yeah. Yep. And I, I, I ran that one hard and I, like I did a carb load before, like I basically treated it as if I was running the marathon Yeah. and you were out there with your bike, like giving me carbs on the intervals that we had planned. Yep. And I, it was good up until like 26 and then I got to like, yeah, about six kilometers out from finishing 32K, it started getting really hard. Yeah. I felt like my heart rate was like going to beat out of my chest. Like my heart was going to beat out of my chest. I was like, I don't know if this is sustainable. So I figured I could probably run the marathon in under 310, knowing that if I had done the last 10K in sub five minute mile yeah. kilometers, then I could do it. Plus um, you have the added benefit. Plus I would have been tapered. Yeah, you like appropriately tapered, uh, more extensive carb load, and also at sea level, yeah. which I think is very important to yeah. point out. So that's kind of how I determined. But then I didn't go into Boston with the expectation or the goal of 310. My goal was to just like run it as well as I could. Yeah. And then in the marathon, I think I knew I was going to be sub 10 at the 32K mark. I was like, and I had just like hit the the peak of heartbreak hill yeah and i was like i can do it now yeah i think that like not like understanding what you're capable of but not like explicitly putting that goal on the race is a really i think it's a really important strategy because it keeps you i think out of your your head a little bit i think a lot of a lot of people like either more novice runners or just people who <clears throat> um set goal times differently you can say, I want to run this in sub 310, but what happens if you have a kilometer where you're like, you're off that pace? It really like, it's a slippery slope on like, you get really focused on having that bad kilometer or <clears throat> yeah, you get caught up in traffic and that slows you down instead of just, I'm going to run each kilometer the best that I can understanding how many kilometers I have left to run mm -hmm. and within my capabilities. Yeah. And I think it keeps you, um, a little more present in the race, like specifically the point of the race that you're in, um, instead of getting wrapped up in what you feel like you should be doing in that moment to reach a goal, which yeah. you're probably going to reach anyways. But, um, yeah, I just, I think that's, it's so funny. People always ask like, well, what was her goal? And usually I say to run as fast as she can. Mm -hmm. Which and is true. You do want to have an idea, which I did. I had an idea of like a goal pace. Yeah. But I knew that there was some like fluidity within that. And then I also knew like, I'm so dumb. I like didn't even look at what 
the tr- the course was like at Boston until like a week before. <laughs> and I'm reading all these articles that were like, make sure you train downhill, make sure you train uphill. The course is really hilly. And mm-hmm. I was like thinking back and I'm like, all of my long runs, all of my pace runs were on completely flat. Yeah. Like along a river. <laughs> I was like, damn it. <laughs> yeah, that was probably a <laughs> huge mistake. And then, you know, you read articles like, cause the beginning of Boston is, d- is starts downhill for like 4k. Yeah. And it was like, don't start out too fast. The downhill really takes a toll on your legs. And I was like, oh my God, I don't know how to run this. I don't know how to run downhill. Like my dad, like the marathon is a tricky duration. It's a tricky distance because things could be going so well and you might like it accumulates, but you don't know it's accumulating until it's too late. The race doesn't really start until there's, yeah, like 12 kilometers left, 10 kilometers. Cause it's all about setting yourself up to not to like be at that, like you want to be right at your threshold, right at that red line without blowing blowing it up and just completely like losing it. But you also can't make up time in the last 10 K because it's, that's only a quarter of the race and you're going to be, you still have that like volume accumulation on your legs. Yeah. So my dad is funny because I was talking to him about my potential like pacing and he's, I mean, he's an experienced marathon runner and he's like, oh, well, what I would do is I would just like pick a time and try to run that time. And I'm like, but I can't because the only experience I have is Chicago. Yeah. And it's been six months and I've trained a lot and have changed a lot in that time. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm going into the unknown here, Mm -hmm. sort of. But I think my training, my preparation set me up well from like a mental confidence standpoint. Yeah. Um, But the race was there were moments in the race where I, th- I was thinking to myself, I am on the edge here. Yep. And almost preparing for the worst. <laughs> uh, what, like looking back, is there anything you wish you had included more of in your training? No. Yeah. I was running. So for Chicago, I was running like 45 on average kilometers a week, only three times a week for Boston. I increased to four times a week yeah and was running between 60 and 70 kilometers a week yeah um and that obviously made a pretty big difference in my training yeah most of those kilometers were slow i think additional kilometers and you did add in more neighborhood runs yeah boston which our neighborhood is really 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 hilly Mm -hmm. so you get a lot of elevation change i think it would be good i mean i'm not a running coach but thinking about what it's like to run at race pace uh on hills and just like maybe add that in and get used to like running fast downhill and then running a little bit slower uphill and maintaining race pace over a number of kilometers on undulating terrain both like like not only like from a physical preparation so you're more prepared to run downhill but also mentally understanding i can I can finish this run at my race pace, even if I have kilometers that here and there that are a little bit off because mm-hmm. of the terrain. I yeah. think that is a really, imp- I would need to do that. Cause I get freaked out when I have a kilometer that's, you know, five or 10 seconds off the pace that I want to be running just cause it's hilly. Yeah. But yeah, I think to be honest with you, I don't think it matters for you. Yeah. I think the fact that, I do have strong legs kind of helps from CrossFit from keeping up like with squatting and that sort of thing. Yeah. You don't have to run hills to strengthen your legs. Mm-hmm. I think the, the, the running hills for you would be more just like mental preparation and then also downhill preparation. Yeah. But there, 
like Chicago was very flat and Boston required and not to sound like a complete and utter nerd here, but I kind of had to study that the, the couple days going in, I watched some videos. I had to like check out the course elevation, like figure out what I was getting into because I just kept hearing like, this is a really tough course. And I also wanted to know like when the hills are coming. Yeah. There's so at the 25 K mark, there are a series of four hills, the Newton Hills, the Newton Hills. And I, I can see them on the elevation graph, but the thing about Boston is that when they say it's flat, it's not flat. Like it's not flat like Chicago. It's, it has undulating hills. Mm -hmm. And so you never really know. So I was, I, I did like a Newton, the first Newton Hill. I was like, okay, this is a hill. And I, it was pretty long. Like the, they're probably like three or four minutes. Like some of them are almost a kilometer. Yeah. And you get to the top and within between the hills, there's hills, little yeah. undulations. <laughs> so I'm like, I knew there was four and I'm like, was that number two? I don't know what number I'm on. Like, I don't know what is considered a hill here. <laughs> and then I would hit another like significant hill. I'm like, okay, I think that's number two. Yeah. And then I would get to like number three and I'm like, okay, this, is this heartbreak hill? <laughs> I, think, I think you know when you're <laughs> what on I'm doing hill. and then definitely you knew I saw a sign a banner at the top of heartbreak hill that was like you've crested heartbreak hill yeah and then you basically go straight down yeah and your legs at that point I was like I'd rather be going up than down <laughs> can I turn around and run this backwards seriously <laughs> like going down was so painful yeah. on the quads my quads because I they because it starts downhill for 4k my quads definitely took a toll yeah from that just I guess the uh, extra additional like pounding and like force yeah like I didn't even run that first 4k that fast because it was quite busy and you're kind of stuck in the pack but um it definitely definitely takes a toll well there's like uh there's like there's research on downhill running mm -hmm. and they've done it in the the context for the research I'm thinking of is they're trying to understand the involvement of lactate in muscle fatigue um and so what they did is that you, they know when, when you run uphill or when you cycle or when you're, you're contracting a lot that lactate accumulates in, uh, the bloodstream. And it's just an indication that, um, you know, you're developing, you're accumulating, accumulating certain, accumulating <laughs> certain like metabolic waste products. There's hydrogen ions accumulating it oftentimes that correlates to um muscle fatigue it's not the cause but it correlates and so what they did is they they picked they had three groups of runners and one group ran on and it, this is all on a treadmill and so one group ran on an incline and then one group ran on flat and then one group ran ran on a decline and the group that had the the most muscle fatigue and muscle like muscle soreness wasn't the incline or the flat it was the decline group like they had muscle fatigue set in sooner than the other two and so it's like all that to say is it's you know muscle fatigue is a bit more complicated mm -hmm. uh, and muscle failure is quite a bit more complicated than people think but clearly there's something going on when you run downhill that accelerates that process so i think that a lot of people probably think like, oh, a downhill course, how nice. Mm -hmm. But really, um, I think that you have to be properly or it benefits you to be somewhat trained for it. Yeah. So Boston is net down is net downhill. Yeah. But it is 
really hard. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, compared to at least Chicago, which is really... I mean, obviously I ran San Francisco, which is also one of the most hilly marathons there are. There is. But it's... It, it was so far... I can't really remember it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I definitely felt that. I think it was in Chicago around the halfway mark where I was like, okay, I'm starting to feel my legs. Yeah. Whereas in Chicago in Boston or sorry, in Boston at the, at the 12, 15 K I was like, okay, my quads, they're torn up already. Yeah. You know, that feeling when you do a set of heavy squats, but you haven't squatted in like a month. And you just, you have stabbies and you, you already yeah. feel the twinging <laughs> yeah. and you're like, okay, my legs are going to be not good tomorrow. Yeah. And they're already kind of cramping a little. Yeah. The stabbies is a good, that's what I call that's that. how I felt. And I was like, I have 27 K to go. Yeah. Like there was this part of my brain at the back was really worried. <laughs> I'm like, this could be really bad. And then there were moments where like my hamstring would twinge. Mm -hmm. Like it, it was like the beginning of a cramp. Was it a, is, was it a twinge or a stabby? It was <laughs> both. Okay. It was like, uh, they would both work. It was like twingy and stabby. A stabby. It's, it was, a <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's so hard to explain, but it's like, it's that thing where I'm sure my face was like, oh shit. Yeah. Like deer in headlights. Yeah, like yeah. my body is breaking down and it's breaking down <laughs> It's happening. Um, but I just thought like, I got to keep going. And then I would think like, okay, my legs are sore. I've made it from 15 to 20 and they haven't changed that much. Yeah. It like, it came on really fast and then just kind of stayed bad. Yeah. And then the last 10 K cause it went downhill again. I was thinking like, okay, this is hurting. Yeah. But also I knew like I kept clicking off kilometers at my pace. And I'm like, if I can do that kilometer, then I can do this kilometer. Yeah. If I, and then it would be like, Hey, I've done, 35 kilometers I can do another kilometer yeah and that's kind of how I did it was like just keep keep that confidence like you know yeah you can walk or you can slow down although walking was never an option like, I saw a lot of I was surprised uh by the number of people who I saw walking granted we were we were at the 25 mile mark yeah. just past it so I think you know you're kind of close to the end but you know I saw a lot of people in Chicago walking mm -hmm. but you also have to remember a lot of people there are on um lottery or yeah charity uh you know boston is 80 percent qualified runners and the boston standard is quick and so i was just surprised to see so many people walking mm -hmm. at what even with wave one would be a pretty like yeah they you just people who probably weren't planning on walking oh yeah i don't think anyone plans to no i think a lot of it probably comes down to cramping or just like you you just you have that like mounting desire to stop i think and that maybe it just gets to you yeah and probably too if you're if if it's a first time boston exper experience i think a lot of people get away with running marathons without doing a lot of you know water fluids gels carbs electrolytes i think it is possible to get through a marathon like not doing those things but i feel like with with boston where there's you it is so much downhill it is such a challenging course that if you don't do those things early just because you feel good you might set yourself up even more for that kind of thing later in the mm -hmm. race um so yeah i mean you felt you you i would say your your fueling is on a, a um shorter interval than a lot of people would expect yeah I mean, I could tell I had, I was seeing what people had on the course, like 
in the in the starting corral not that many people seem to have gels on them or i would see them running with the belt where you have the gels kind of like stuffed in like a little holder thing hole. right and i and it would be like two and i'm like dude i have six gels or five gels yeah and i was also taking in gatorade at almost every station so so what was the what what was your nutrition well first like? i want to go back to the walking part oh, okay sorry I think the one thing that deters me from walking besides just the fact that I just don't want to be that person was that in Chicago, when I crossed the finish line, my legs went from like 10 out of 10 sore to like 20 out of 10 sore. Like they got way, as soon as I stopped, I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. I can't move. So I was thinking in, in Chicago, in Boston, if I walk, how am I going to start again? Yeah. I think starting after walking is really hard. Yes. Um, but yeah, back to the fueling. Um, so what was your, what was your plan there? What was your strategy? It's the same as Chicago, but maybe people have yeah. forgotten what that was. So intra, I basically did every 4K. I took in between 10 and 20 grams of carbs. So 4K for you is uh, about 20 minutes. 18 to 20 minutes. Yep. Obviously, it varied slightly because they only had, they had Gatorade and water stations every mile. Um, and I, w I work off kilometers. So when I was at the, tw the four kilometer mark, it wasn't exactly on the mile. So I had to just think, okay, uh, it was a, there was a little bit of thinking that had to go on in the race to figure out when to take the gel. So it would alternate. Every four kilometers, I was taking in some form of carbs. I would start with the first four I did, one gel, which has 20 grams of carbs. It has electrolytes and then caffeine and water. And it was like four ounces of water. So like I would take in one, one of the little cups that they gave you. Problem is, is like you're supposed to take the gels with the water. So I'd have to see in front of me around the 4K mark or 12K mark or 20K mark when it was coming up. And then take in a gel quickly and then a minute later have the water. On the alternate 4K four, four intervals, I would have Gatorade. So I would try to get in two of those cups at the, at the, the Gatorade points. Yep. And they had Gatorade and water at every single mile. Yeah. Um, I don't think I was actually taking in quite as much Gatorade as I would have liked. Um, but because it's just a lot of fluid. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it was, so the fourth, 4k, I would take in a gel and water, 8k Gatorade, 12k, and then alternating till the finish. Yeah. It was worried. I was so worried. The last gel I took in this, they have goo gel roctane, which a little, is a little bit higher in electrolytes and caffeine. Yeah. And I took it in with knowing that there was going to be a, a Gatorade on a water station coming up and because there are so many people on the course at once, they have on the right side, they would, it would be like Gatorade water. And then as soon as the water ended on the left side, it would be like Gatorade water just so that not everyone's get, trying to like bottleneck into exactly. One. So if you, if you didn't want water, you would run on the left and then kind of switch over to the right. So I was waiting for the left side. And at this one station, they only had it on the right side. Oh, and so I ran by and I was like, I didn't get water. And then I'm worried like, shoot, excuse me, somebody, <laughs> water shoot like 
the thing about those gels, if you don't take them with water, they're very highly, highly concentrated. Yeah. And so they, you need fluid to kind of like get them to pass through your They can system. give you diarrhea. Yeah. Um, and so I was thinking, oh my God, I, I'm starting to feel my stomach ache. But then I thought, okay, well, I've been taking in fluids for like the last two and a half hours. I'm pretty sure I'm good. Yeah. But it was just one of those things yep. where I, you know, if there's something to panic over. We'll find it. Panic. <laughs> Maybe the panic distracted from your leg pain though. I also took in a lot of carbs before the race because the race didn't start till 1030. What was your carb intake prior to 1030 ballpark? Um probably close to 150 yeah carbs yep so i had a breakfast when i woke up around six and coffee and then i had a bit more carbs and then i had and then on the way on the bus at 8 8 30 8 45 i had like a huge bowl of oatmeal with raisins in it yeah and it was oatmeal that had some of the so like flavored oatmeal so it had sugar in it yeah and then i was sipping on gatorade and then before the race like 20 minutes before i had uh some of those like in- endurance gummies yeah. and candy. So it was definitely a lot, but because I was, I had been up for almost four hours before my start, I was able to get in quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and then the two days before from like a carb loading perspective, I had 450 grams carbs, keeping protein and fat low. Mm-hmm. And then the day before I had uh, 550 grams carbs, keeping fat and protein low. Yeah. Which like, it's not that much food in t- from like a calorie standpoint. I think it's just hard to carb load for me because my appetite, I'm not a big eater to begin with. And then leading up to a race, you're not training as hard because you're tapered. And also you have some nerves. And so your appetite isn't you know, 10 out of 10. Yeah. So you really have to be intentional. But you help me a lot. It does help to have a helper. Mm-hmm. Um, someone who reminds you and maybe keeps your food schedule you don't need someone to keep your food schedule but if you're like if you're like me it might help to have someone like you who's just a bit more like schedule oriented but like literally just having someone remind you to eat when you don't feel like eating Mm -hmm. because appetite goes both ways like some people eat when they aren't hungry and um i don't know it's it yeah it's just it's really helpful to have someone there to remind you to do those things um so boston's like a it's a bucket list race for a lot of people a lot of runners will spend uh their entire career trying to qualify for boston and part of it is it's the oldest marathon in the world longest running marathon in the world um what was it for you like was the experience bucket list worthy like this is an uh, we've talked about this, so I kind of know your mm-hmm. thoughts, but I'm, I think that people might find your perspective on Boston interesting from a purely objective kind of standpoint. Yeah. Um, well, not having been in the running community for very long, I didn't really have any crazy expectations, but when I got there and a couple of people who have had run it told me, oh, well, you know, be prepared. It's, it's quite an experience. Which I guess it was, like, when you land in Boston, it's, you know, it's Boston Marathon. Like, all the hotels are, you know, Boston Marathon. What was interesting is there are these, like, jackets, Boston Marathon jackets, and each year they're a different color to signify, like, what year you've run. 
And there are so many of these jackets around. I thought for sure that they were free. Like you were given one when you got your race package, but you don't, you have to buy them. And anyone can buy them. uh, Anyone can buy them. But like, it was interesting because there were people wearing Boston jackets that weren't from even last. Like they were, there were some from this year. Well, a lot from this year. There were a lot from last year. They're just like all these different ones. Yeah. And it's like, it's just, I guess it's part of the tradition. Like you wear your jacket, you wear your jacket. And there were a lot of people, if they weren't wearing their jacket, they were wearing like a Boston hat, like a Boston marathon hat. Like it was very much more so than in Chicago. Yeah. It definitely had a, it's the word like cult. Yeah. A little bit. It was, it's like, there's a prestige. Yeah. It kind of reminded me of like, you know, when you go to like Harvard campus, not that I've been there. Well, Harvard is, yeah. It's like everyone wears Harvard. I know it, Harvard like sweaters. Yeah. Like Ivy League. Boston Marathon kind of reminded me of like the, the Ivy League of marathons. It's like any, so I will actually, I'll point and out. And I'm not being negative here. No, no, no. I I think that there's an interesting point to be made. So it's in, it's really any university in or like big university in the U.S. You go to the campus, you everyone's wearing mm-hmm. NC State or UNC or whatever. Like people wear it on campus and then they wear it after they graduate. And it's like a big part of their identity. And I think that same kind of thing happens in Boston. And I think that there's like and maybe your reluctance to buy one of those jackets and partake is a cultural difference with you being Canadian like I don't see people do that as much here. There's not as much uh, social identification with things that you do, universities that you attend, um, that kind of thing. Whereas in the U.S., that's a really big deal. It's why people, a lot of that, like some people go to universities just because of that. It's like so important to their social identity to 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 be a part of something like that. And I think that's probably why on top of the fact that it is just a bucket list it's something that people spend years trying to do and they're probably just really proud of that like I like I know myself I would buy a jacket but yeah I'm also like when I was at state even now I have tons of NC state stuff yeah and now you live in Canada and you're wearing a Canada sweater as we speak I just I just like what you do it is exactly what I do you like arrived and you're like I need a flannel stat immediately Buffalo red and black, please. Several of them. But it's, um, yeah, I think that's it. I like, think that's you a, want a ca- Canadian, like, themed guest bedroom. We have a Canadian I know. themed <laughs> guest bedroom. So, like, you know, okay. Um, but yeah, it, it isn't, it was very interesting in that way. Um, in terms of the actual, like, race experience. Well, actually, I will say, I didn't find it to be, that different than like the games like in madison yeah like in madison you get off and there's like posters of tea eclair to me and you're in madison and it's all about crossfit it's but again i a small town a big event that sort of thing so i guess i had some experience with that in a way yeah um the one difference that i will mention because i'm sure a lot of people listening have done crossfit or do crossfit what i love about running marathons and again, I'm ex- inexperienced, but from my experiences, in comparison to CrossFit, when you go to a marathon, like Boston, for example, what is awesome about that, 
But what is similar to CrossFit is everyone at the CrossFit Games does CrossFit, the majority of people, in some capacity, which is really cool. It's not like when you go to a baseball game, you know, most people in the stands have never played baseball or hockey or football. You're just getting, you know, people who eat hot dogs and drink beer. (laughs) I mean, no offense. It's okay. Um, When you have at a, at a marathon, like I'm, I'm at the expo and everyone there is running a marathon. Yeah. Or runs like it's, it's not about the top 40. No. And it's not about, you know, Tia Claire Toomey or Matt Fraser or Rich Froning. It's, it's not, no one even the top people, people don't even know who's there from the elites. Well, that's the great, I mean, we stood there at 25 and we were there early enough where we saw the elites come by and yeah, it was, it was, it's awesome to see that level of talent in person, but it's not like, you know, it's not like the leaders ran by and then people started leaving because they're like, well, I saw who I came here to see. Yeah. If anything, the crowds got bigger once they came by. Like, yeah. because people are there not to support the elite specifically. They are there to support every single person who's on the course running the marathon. Yeah. And that was, that's what I love about marathons. Yeah. Is that, that everyone there is actually doing it. Yeah. Not does it is competing is there to PR for themselves and it has the support from other athletes and from other spectators. And so, you know, and like it, everyone's there, like there's a lot of people there with their families and stuff like that. Yeah. It's just like, I don't know, there's this, an experience to it, even though you're just out there running, having you there, having my parents there. Like yeah. it's just, it's an experience. That's well, I think different. like it's like marathons are, pretty emotional to begin with Mm -hmm. probably more so when you have someone specifically running the race but even if you didn't like it's not lost on me that everyone out there running has like a story of how they got there and especially a race like boston where where most people have had to qualify like that's a lot of training like almost everybody out there have i mean they have miles and miles and miles that they put in. Like they've run through the winter. They've probably suffered injuries. Like they've had setbacks. They've had to deal with, you know, balancing a work and a family life with, you know, the demands of marathon training. Like everyone out there, you know, has, has a a story probably with, you know, good moments and really hard moments. And so it's, I, I, I I just find it, it's amazing to watch people do it. And I think that's, um well and you have people on the course i ran by a guy pushing a wheelchair i saw two yeah and you have adaptive athletes and i mean you get that in crossfit but you don't and yeah you get it at the games now but it's but people are on the same course i know and they're running they're not in the they're not in some like barn (laughs) in the back of madison like you know you don't have matt like the masters athletes are on the same course yeah and they're receiving the same support. Like it, it's not. They're doing the same thing. Yeah. People aren't there watching because they have nothing else to do and they're trying to pass the time. Like yeah. it's not like watching Heat 4 at the games go. Like it's, they are there to, to fully support Heat 4 or Heat Heat 1, whatever yeah. the like bad heat, bad quote unquote bad heat yeah, is. Yeah. Or like the masters or the teens or the adaptive, like those people receive the exact same amount of support as the people who are out there winning. In fact, probably more because a lot of people don't get to the course to even see the winners because they leave so early. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that. What one more thing I like about running marathon specifically or half marathon is like you get a time and everyone knows what that means. Whereas like at the CrossFit games, like it's different every time. 
Yeah, you can't. If you say to a just a stranger on the street, well, I ran a marathon. Number one, they're going to know what that means. And if they have any if you know background in running at all, if you say I ran a 308, they're going to go, holy crap, that's really fast. What What's that pace? And you say, oh, it's about a 710 per mile. And they're like, oh, my God. Because a lot of people have run like around like, you know, between seven and eight minute miles, that pace for some period of time. It's like relatable ish. Yeah. Whereas like if you, you know, in, in CrossFit, if you say, well, I'm a CrossFit games athlete to someone you're on the street, they're going to be like, what? Yeah. You, what is that? Oh, okay. What does that mean? And like, even if you were to say, um, you know, I, I completed Murph in 44 minutes, they're going to be like, what? Yeah. So it's, it's not as relatable. And I think the, the thing that I really like about running is that it's, um, it's so accessible. Mm -hmm. It's, it's like uh, from an exercise standpoint, it's the only thing really, I think we're, we're born with an understanding of how to do. You don't have to learn how to walk. You don't have to learn how to run. You can just go out the door and run and you get better at doing it. The more you do it, there's not, not really a lot of technique to it. Um, like the technique things tend to fix themselves. Everyone has a unique way of doing it that fits their biomechanics. Whereas like CrossFit, you have to learn how to do that stuff. Yeah. It's not natural. And then it's not really that accessible for people. It's not something that literally anyone in the world can go do. You have to have access to equipment. You have to have access to a gym. You have to have access. If you want to do it for free at home, you have to have access to the internet. Um, yeah, I just, I, I, there's something really pure about running that, um, I guess I'm becoming a bit more drawn to the, the one thing I really enjoy about running a marathon is it's, you do, it's one event and then the next day you can do nothing. Yeah. You can like, we were walking around the Boston the next day and I was thinking to myself, I have been this sore and had to do another day of competing several times in my CrossFit career. And I'm like, this is nice. Yeah. I don't have to go for a run. I don't have to jump on a box. I don't have to do 150 pound overhead squat. <laughs> like I don't have to do the event. I don't, you know, like I don't have I don't to do have thrusters. To, yeah. I don't have to do rope climbs. <laughs> I don't have to do muscle ups. Like I will say I was probably more sore after doing Murph at the 2015 games than I was after the marathon. And I had to do three more days of competing at the games. Yeah. I like CrossFit's next level. Like running a marathon's hard. Yeah. It is hard and it's 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 hard because of the duration and the you know, there is a lot of like training that is required to, to be okay after a marathon or be okay during. But holy moly. I think that a marathon's harder. Like a CrossFit athlete could not just go run a marathon. No, it's different. You have to train. But I don't know. There's this like competing at the higher level in CrossFit. It's has its own, it's its own beast. Yes. Like thinking back, like, Oh man, some of those days, those sore days waking up and having to do a whole full day of competing. Yeah. And just like the, the amount of adrenaline you feel before each event. I don't know, like a marathon, you, you're bust out. It's like, you know, you you're get, just like hanging up on the porta bodies. <laughs> Everyone's chill. Yeah. You have the adrenaline rush like right before and then it's done instead of like, you know, you're up and down and up and down yeah. and up and down. It's like CrossFit's like a psychotic track. It meet. really is. It's it like really where you do like, it's like a decathlon, but worse because it's, 
it's like that level of adrenaline probably before each event, except there are more events and you also have absolutely no idea what the events are going to be. <laughs> it's like, I don't understand how people's nervous systems are just completely fucked. They I mean, are. They probably are. Like I was there where I'm just like, like, I don't, I can't do this anymore. I need to stop. <laughs> where you just like, I don't think I've ever gone into the last day of competition, like excited no. to do an event. I'm always like, I got to get this over with. Yeah. I think that you can, you can offset that a little bit. Like you can obviously eat for it and endure it, but I think the best that you can do is endure it. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely, it's definitely nice to do like one and done. Really. It is. Yeah. Um, but overall, yeah, I mean, going back to the, the discussion on what Boston was like, the actual race was great. There, there are a lot of really cool parts of the course, and there were a ton of fans. But, and this may be a very unpopular opinion, I think Chicago was actually more, more exciting. Yeah. Like, the, the, you're not running point to point, so you're not, like, way out there. You don't have to take a bus. And you're kind of just running through different parts of the city and you get the different boroughs. And I actually think there are more fans in Chicago. Yeah. There were, there was more music or more people. Um, and maybe it was cause you don't have as many people who are as intense or who had to qualify. But I would say like Chicago had, had a big, 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 big bigger vibe in a way. Yeah. So, um, if, if you're, you know, I, I think Chicago is definitely something that, if you're running marathons and you're not somebody who's going to qualify for Boston, Chicago is a, an amazing experience. Yeah. Um, and I think New York is on my bucket list. Next. Well, Chicago is, I didn't realize this, I guess the population of Chicago is 2.7 million people. Population of Boston, 685,000. Yeah. That explains a lot. Yeah. So I think you're just, you're going to feel that a little bit. Like you were there. Were there more people on the course in Chicago? Chicago was really difficult to navigate. I mean, it was more, I will say from a spectator standpoint, more accessible because of the way that the course is designed. Like you can just, you can walk and get to more places. Whereas I think because Boston is point to point and kind of straight out, um, it's not particularly friendly. So like, I didn't get to experience Boston. Like, I don't know what it was like at the, um, the 15 kilometer mark, but, um, it makes sense that you say that because mm -hmm. of, um, in my perception of Chicago moving around was that there are a lot of people out for yeah, this race. There were more people on the course for sure. There was more music. There was just like more entertainment yeah. on the course. And I so. think the, sh the, the neighborhood vibe, like the neighborhood thing in Chicago is a really big deal. Like the, the neighborhoods want to have their each, their own individual kind of experience and that's what, like, you know, we have a, I have a client in Chicago and that's her big thing is each neighborhood is, um, quite different where I don't, I think Boston has like, you know, obviously the tunnel, whatever it will, tunnel. Um, that's kind of a special thing. Yeah. The like, scream tunnel. Yeah. There's definitely points in the race where you feel this yeah. special experience, for but I don't sure. think it's quite as sustained as mm -hmm. Chicago or at least based on what you said. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, there were moments in Chicago I was like, oh, okay, this is a lot. Yeah. But, I mean, I felt that in Boston. It just wasn't as much. Yep. Um, but overall, like, it was, I just, I stayed, yeah, I, I was, I'm really stoked with the experience. It's like, 
I don't think I changed as a person or learned anything new about myself, but it's just like, it's this thing that I, this, this thing that I have now, this experience, it's just like a special one. Yeah. That's yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like a feather in your cap Mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah. I think that's, um, a lot of people do set out, maybe this, we can end on this topic. I think a lot of people do set out to do marathons and Ironman and, things like that to prove something to themselves and to learn about themselves. Um, and I'm only bring this up because someone asked you this the other day, what did you learn about yourself? And I think for you and probably for me, if I did this as well, like it's not so much learning anything new, it's more like confirming what you already know, not to sound like a snob. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like you said, you've been an athlete for so long that there's not really a lot more to learn like maybe if you did an ultra, maybe if you got really into like yoga or something super off center for you, then you would learn, um, yoga is not really a sport or is it? Um, I think there's, there's, I don't think you can compete in yoga. I think that's like part of it. I know. But I mean, you can, you I just mean, can't talk I about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think, um, there's nothing wrong with, with doing events like that to like, to try and learn something about yourself. Yeah. I think that accomplishing hard things is a really important part of life. And if, you know, a marathon or a half marathon or even like a 10 K, whatever it is, kickstarts that for you, then good. That's a good thing. I think for, you know, a hard thing for you where you might learn more about yourself would be like taking two weeks off exercise and instead of, you know, doing very active, like, um, you know, fitness type things, spend two weeks disconnecting, being calm, mindful. And I'm not sounds, suggesting sounds this, awful. but that's where, yeah, yeah. I, that's I where you it. would, you would learn more about yourself, something yeah. like that. Um, so yeah, the Moss, the Boston marathon just confirmed that you're really good at running. Oh, thanks. Which we already know. So. I'm con- I'm currently in in the midst of convincing Mer- Meredith to run a marathon with me. Not, not just not any marathon. with me, but yeah, I mean, obviously not. Well, that's why she <laughs> suggested the New York marathon. Yeah, in 2022. Yeah, and I was like, well, I can't do 2022. How am I supposed to beat you? <laughs> By I'm not. I had to take. We have like a four month head start, but uh. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see about that. Yeah. Um, I think that's it. Yeah. I couldn't have done it without you. I'm not so sure about that, but I hope that I okay, made it Okay, I'll easier. say this. It, having, having, even though I'm out there on my own running a marathon, having the support, like knowing Meredith is watching, and like all of these people, like, you know, people I'm sure who are listening now today we're following along on the live feed, following along on Instagram. And I I was thinking about that during the race. I was thinking Meredith is going to be proud of that. Like I got to keep the pace up. She's watching. Everyone's watching. Like you know, it having that support, having seeing like you know, I had a couple clients in Boston and I saw one of them on the course just like screaming her head off. And that was so amazing and and you know, I met I met a new friend on the bus and, you know, seeing you and, and your stepsister and my parents and having them there, like 
that all adds to the experience. Like I think go if I had gone to Boston by myself, it just wouldn't have been the same. Even though like the, would the marathon have changed? Not re- not really, but it's all the other stuff. Yeah. It's that that support and that it adds so much to the experience. Yeah. So I'll say that. So thanks for coming. My pleasure. Um all right, so I guess that's it. Thanks for listening. Uh we hope you enjoyed I hope you enjoyed following along to the Boston updates while I was there. That was really difficult to do because we weren't moving around that much, but I personally enjoyed like learning more about the race um, while I was out there and having some fun with that. So thanks for, uh, we got like a thousand DMs on that. So I appreciate the support because it's really hard to do and it makes me want to do it again. Um, And yeah, I don't. I would say if I'm doing a race and Alex is on the Instagram, maybe lower your expectations. Oh. I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're like, look at this patch of grass. Um, yeah, room to grow on that, I guess. But um, okay, I have to defend myself. <laughs> You've done races, and I've done just fine. I know. In keeping people entertained, thank you very much. <laughs> we just have a different flavor of entertainment. I yeah, think. I like highbrow jokes that most people don't even know that I'm joking. Yeah. And you like the educational aspect of things. I do. I do. You know, who was really impressed by that was your mom. Um, yeah, she, yeah. So it was cool. Um, righto. So we're back in town. I guess we'll be back on a more regular podcast schedule. I think we have Lindsay scheduled on for the next one. So look out for that. Um, have you ever, have you ever noticed, and I'm talking to the listener, how Meredith really drags out the ends of podcasts. No? Okay, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, can we end it? Yeah, like, subscribe, share. We'll talk to you again super soon. Goodbye.